Well, hello, family. Jesus is glorious. Hallelujah. We are weak. Jesus is strong. We do ugly. Jesus is beautiful. We are fickle. Jesus is faithful. Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love Jesus? Hallelujah. That's not even my sermon. That's just a blessing. That was for free, guys. Open your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 50. That's the last chapter in Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. We're going to pick it up where we left off in verse 15. Um, If you're just uh, tuning in here, we're finishing the story of Joseph today. And it is a beautiful, beautiful ending. Thank God for happy endings. Um, this scene, uh, actually, this scene's really important because it helps us properly interpret not only all the other scenes that we've read in Joseph's life, but actually helps us interpret the entire book of Genesis. So we kind of read this retroactively over the whole book of Genesis. It's a really important chapter. And so with that said, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We come to your presence through Jesus, because you are the fountainhead of all goodness. You are the fountainhead of all life and hope. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you forgive us of our evil, of our wickedness. You rinse us, and I pray that you would rinse us, now rinse our thoughts, rinse our consciences rents our hearts through the word make us beautiful and spotless like a bride on her wedding day amen have you ever experienced something that was so good something that was just so amazing and yet even as you've experienced this 
goodness, this amazing, wonderful thing. At the same time, you've got this little nagging thought in the back of your head that sounds like this. Well, you know, I, I just know this isn't going to last. Anybody? You experienced that? Maybe for you, you maybe it was that you, you, you uh, received a contract and you read it over uh, 19 times, and you're like, this is just too good to be true. <laughs> I can't believe we're about to get into this wonderful partnership. Or, or maybe there was a family member that pulled through for you, and you never even expected this person to even show up, let alone bail you out and help you out, and they did. Or maybe it was a debt that was completely annihilated, and you were willing to live under that debt for years and years and years, and someone wiped that debt off the planet. Uh, what happened to you was totally unexpected. It was a near miraculous goodness, and yet something inside of you is just waiting for the bottom to fall out. You know that feeling? Well, that's kind of what Joseph's brothers are experiencing right here in this scene. If you remember back in chapter 45, Joseph told his brothers that he forgave them. He told them that he had absolutely no desire to judge them for all the wicked things that they had done to him. Remember that? But they just cannot believe that Joseph has truly forgiven him. Can't believe that. And it's coming to the surface here at the end of this story. It seems that they believe that Joseph's forgiveness was just all an act. Or maybe they thought, you know, he's just playing a part. He's just kind of playing, a, a acting out a role while uh, dad was still alive so that it didn't upset him. You know, like in The Godfather. See, even though, and get this, guys, even though jo Joseph has graciously fed them during a worldwide famine, he's generously given them land to live in. Oh, by the way, it's the land in Goshen. It's really great, fertile land, and he gave it to them. Even though Joseph has given them herds, he's given them wagons, he's given them gold to buy things with. Even though they've all lived together in peace for the last 17 years, and even though they just mourned their father's death all together as a family in their homeland, no less, for seven days, they just still cannot believe that Joseph has actually forgiven them of all their wickedness toward him. It's just too good to be true. It's just too good to really trust and believe that. Surely, since dad is now dead, Joseph is just picking the right time to exact vengeance. Now, here's why they have a hard time believing. We have to guess it tells us in the text. In fact, they speak it. They tell us. This is why they have a hard time believing. They're aware of the heinousness of their crimes against their brother. Look what they say. Verse 17, we'll just take this as a little slice here. So this is the message. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their, what's that word? Sin. Because they, what? Did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him, when they said these things to him breaks his heart. 
Now, just look at the three words that they use to describe their actions to their brother Joseph. They say it's transgression. You know what that means? Transgression means rebellion. It means to rise up in clear defiance of an authority. There is a boundary right here that an authority is laid down. And you don't cross the boundary. And transgression says, I am crossing the boundary. I am stamping and dancing all over that. That's transgression. Sin. The word sin used here is a, a violation of a moral standard. So where transgression has kind of a legal connotation, sin has a moral connotation to it. There is a moral standard, and you are not living up to that moral standard. Specifically, what they did was objectively wrong to do to a brother. You don't treat a brother like that no matter what, and they did that. So there's that moral component to it, right? They use the word evil. Evil means that their behavior was intended, intended, it was purposed, this was the telos or the purpose of the action, was to bring injury or harm or abuse to their little brother. They wanted that to happen to their little brother. It was evil, okay? In other words, they did not make a mistake in doing wrong. They didn't accidentally do something wrong, that moral standard, right? Sin. No. That's not what they call it. The, the, the brothers don't talk about having some kind of momentary lapse of sanity during, due to the pressures of, like, married life or <laughs> bad economy or low blood sugar that day. They were in their right minds, in other words, when they did this. They sold their little 17-year-old brother into slavery, human slavery. And then they went home and they lied to their father's face for years. They did it on purpose. And if that wasn't enough, they did it with the intent, with the intent to bring lifelong harm against Joseph, and they did it in gleeful defiance of God's moral law. And they slept well that night. They got a great night's sleep after all that. In fact, they felt better in the morning. It was sin. It was evil. It was transgression. Listen, by any measurement that we would care to use, what they did, by definition, was unforgivable. Amen? Unforgivable. This is exactly why they fought, grown men, by the way, full-grown, bearded-up men, fall down in the face of their little brother, and they beg for forgiveness even after all the physical uh, provisions that have been given to them, even after all the physical supplies and all the kindness and all the generosity that Joseph has given to them, the redemption that they need most is what? Deep forgiveness for the sins that they have committed. At the end of the day, that's what they really need to be freed from and rescued from. That's the redemption they truly, desperately, deeply need is forgiveness. And I think that this is a great depiction that we're reading here of what we need most from God. Yes, we need food, we need water, we need love and family, and all those things are good, yes, and amen. 
But I think there's a picture here of what we need most from God. This is the redemption that all humanity needs. We hear the good news. The good news that God forgives sinners. God forgives people who transgress his moral standard and even intentionally hurt other people made in the image and likeness of God. We do it on purpose, and God forgives us. And we hear that good news, that great message that goes out. And, and what, what happens? We believe it. We believe it. In a sense, we go, that sounds really good. I like that. I believe that. But if we're being honest, a few years go by, and some life happens, and it starts to sound a little too good to be true. Amen? We start remembering. You got to sit like that? I do. We start remembering. Sure, sure. God can forgive respectable sins. Sure, God can, God can forgive unintentional mis- mistakes. That's reasonable. That makes logical sense. I mean, God could even forgive nonviolent white collar crimes. Sure. But surely God does not forgive intentional, grievous, I know what I'm doing and I hope it makes your life really rough transgressions. Surely we still have to pay God for those, right? We wonder how could God forgive the unforgivable in me? And that's what we need to be rescued most from, family. Because you, you can't get away from that just by moving. We need to be forgiven from the consequences of doing the unforgivable. And there's some really good news here in Genesis. Scripture gives us two assurances that our Redeemer has truly forgiven the unforgivable in us. Can I tell you about that today? first assurance our redeemer sees wickedness from god's perspective our redeemer sees wickedness from god's perspective look at the text here as for you you meant evil against me but god meant it for good what's the it the evil to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph's brothers fear judgment for their unforgivable sins. And Joseph tells them that they have nothing to fear because he has no desire to judge them. I mean, it's not like he's, like he's holding back this desire to judge them. He didn't even have the desire. It's not even there. He's trying to communicate this to his brothers. So that's why they shouldn't be afraid. And here's why. He sees their wickedness from God's perspective. That's what he says. Joseph knows and sees that God has mysteriously worked good through their sins. He sees God's governance overruling their wickedness. 
if I could put it in a sentence. He sees God's governance overruling all their wickedness. And now we know that Joseph didn't figure this out all by himself, <laughs> right? This divine perspective obviously came from the divine. It came from a revelation. God had to reveal this to his human mind. Remember the dreams that he had when he was 17 years old? God had to give him divine revelation from the Cetus, from his, God's perspective. Joseph was both sinned against and sent by God to Egypt. Did Joseph get to Egypt because he was sinned against by his brothers and because God sent him there? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Both happened congruently at the same time. He was sinned and sent. God did not prevent Joseph from being trafficked to Africa. God could have prevented that, and God chose to not prevent that. That evil. God did not prevent him from being falsely accused of rape or for being thrown down into a disgusting dungeon or forgotten by the cupbearer two years later. God could have prevented all of that or some of that, and God didn't prevent any of it, did he? God is sovereign. In fact, God permitted all of those things to happen to Joseph. Why? To accomplish his good plan for Joseph and for the salvation of his entire family. Their plan for him was evil. God's plan for him was the ultimate good, and even the good for many, many people. In fact, we're here because of this. This is the majestic truth of Genesis. God is sovereign over sin. Yes, he is. Sin is powerful. God's more powerful. And aren't you glad? God demonstrates that his providence supremely governs all things, not by working around evil, but by actually using it, get this, to accomplish his good, good purpose. God doesn't work around that. God doesn't go to plan B. God doesn't rewrite and scrap things just because evil is happening. He says, I'll show you how powerful and sovereign I am. I'm going to take that and going to actually use it to forward my plan. That's how much in control I am over that. That is a great and mighty God. The theologian John Calvin said this about this particular verse. He said, quote, So that whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his elect. Isn't that amazing? The very purpose, the very design and purpose of poison is to what? To kill, right? And yet God glorifies himself by using something that's intended to kill to actually bring about health for his people. I mean, it'd be amazing if he just said, I'll just neutralize the poison. God is so sorry. He says, I'm going to actually use the thing that's supposed to kill you to actually give you life and health. I'll show you how I'm the flex of my muscles. Noah's got a flex like God's got a flex. The Apostle Paul says the same thing here in Romans, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, so this is a conditional promise. The Bible is full of conditional, there are some unconditional promises. This is not one of them. This is a conditional promise. And we know that for those who love God, that's the condition. 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a great verse. That's like a refrigerator verse. That should be like right on the refrigerator, right? Joseph, the Redeemer, has no desire to judge his brothers because he sees, with the help of divine revelation, with the help of hindsight, yes, of course, but Joseph sees that God was at work in his life all along for good. That's what he sees very clearly. And this is why he's not angry. It's why he doesn't want to like, come down in wrath on his brothers. He sees that God was always ruling over his life, not his brothers, and not Potiphar, and not Potiphar's wife, and not the cupbearer, and not even Pharaoh. None of those people was ruling his life, though they were impacting his life. He knows that God was ruling over his life all the time, and he never stopped. This divine perspective, because he has this divine perspective, it's turned away his wrath. It's caused him to truly forgive the unforgivable. That's how he's like, this is how you know I'm not putting on an act. I don't have to try at this. This is really how I feel about you guys. As Christians, we believe that Joseph points beyond himself to Jesus, the one who has forgiven the unforgivable in us. But unlike Joseph, Jesus intentionally knowingly and intentionally placed his life into evil hands, fully entrusted himself to God's good sovereignty. Joseph didn't know what he was doing. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and said, I'll do it anyway. Luke records this prayer of the early believers that teaches exactly this. It's in Acts chapter 4, verse 24. This is how they start the prayer. Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then you jump down to 27. Truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. See, everybody was in on this. Everybody sinned. Everybody sinned to put Jesus on the cross peoples of Israel, to do whatever your, what? Hand and plan had predestined to take place. The cross was not something God was like planning on the fly in response to what wicked people were doing. What humans did to Jesus was evil, and it was unforgivable and yet it was the pre it was predestined by God to accomplish his good purposes for all humanity they intended the cross for evil but God intended the cross for the saving of many lives from the penalty of sin and the powerful control of sin to set us free it was our sins that put Jesus the innocent son of God on the cross. And yet he was also sent to the cross at the same time. It was our sins that put him on the cross. Could there be a greater wrongdoing? Not in, in a world that I know of. 
Yet Jesus knows that the poison that he was given to drink to the dregs had become the very medicine of forgiveness for sinners like you and me. And that's why he drank it. Jesus knew. Jesus saw from a divine perspective that Joseph could only hope to have had. Jesus knew that he was sent to the cross, not just kidnapped and arrested in the middle of the night. Jesus saw from his divine perspective that the Father was always governing his life and no one else was governing his life. Right? What did Jesus say? No one takes my life. (laughs) But I lay down my life. And I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it back. This is what I have received from my Father. What did he tell Pilate? Pilate says, hey, don't you know I have the power to kill you or set you free? And he says, you don't have any power that the Father hasn't given you. And the Father's given you the power to kill me. Right? That's what he was saying. Jesus knew who he was and what he was doing because he had that divine perspective on evil and wickedness. Jesus sees that the Father's plan was accomplished, and this makes him exceedingly glad. This makes him exceedingly happy to forgive you and I who sin. This is why Jesus isn't mad at us. If you are in Christ, you do not need to be afraid of the one that you have sinned against. You are truly, deeply forgiven. That's good news. Second assurance. Our Redeemer has stood in our place of judgment. Our Redeemer has stood in our place of judgment. Verse 19. But Joseph said to him, this is how he replies, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's a rhetorical question. What is the implied answer? No, I'm not in the place of God. I am not God. This is the second reason that Joseph has no desire to judge his brothers. Don't you, by the way, don't you love the fact that we have a faith that has reasons We have reasons to believe what we believe. I hope that comes across every week. I hope you get that. The second reason that Joseph gives, that he has no even a desire to judge his brothers, but only forgive him is this. He's reminding them, and he's reminding himself, I think, frankly, that he's just a mere human. He's a mere mortal man, just like them. Judgment belongs to God alone, and Joseph will not step into that slot because God belongs in that you know, place. God will judge perfectly. God will make all wrongs right. No one escapes the eyes of God. Not you, not me, not anyone else. He doesn't let the smallest, slightest transgression or fraction go. It will all be tallied. Okay? Joseph says, basically, that's not my job. That's not my job assignment. It's not right, his right, to assume the role of judge. Why? He says, because he is merely a man, and he is not God. Joseph is essentially saying this. Even if I wanted to, even if I wanted to exact judgment on you, which I don't, But even if I did want to do that, I I couldn't do that. 
I don't have the right to ascend up into the judge's seat because I myself am only a human. Therefore, do not fear, brothers. Do not be afraid. Come close. Come together. Brothers and sisters, we have a redemption of sin that is even more amazing than this in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. And he has been given the right to judge us for our sins. John 5, 22. These are the words of Jesus. These are not my words. These are the words of Jesus. Look what he says. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? The Son. So who is going to judge us on the last day? Jesus. So let that mess with your theology of whatever Jesus you believe in. Okay? Let it. He said it. So unlike Joseph, who was only a man, Jesus is in the place of God. Why? Because he's God. He said so. The Father has given him the right to judge us. Now, shouldn't that make us just a little bit scared of seeing Jesus face to face one day? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to see some we're going to see someone who was wronged. How about I put it that way? It should make us a little scared, except for this one wonderful sweet glorious fact. Jesus who is in the place of God came down and he chose to stand in the place of man. Joseph says, I'm not going to go up there. Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to come down there. I'm going to stand in your place. Isn't this wonderful, guys? Look what Jesus says just a couple verses later. Truly, truly, I say to you. So whatever comes next is really true, (laughs) right? (laughs) He said it twice. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, Right? So it's not just saying, I believe in Jesus, whatever that means. It's I believe this thing as he's revealed himself to me in the gospel, right? And believes him, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is that wonderful, sweet, beautiful, glorious fact. Jesus says that we do not come into judgment if we believe that he was what? Sent by God. Sent where? Sent where? Sent to the cross. Well, what happened at the cross? God's unrestrained judgment. Jesus was judged for our evil, for our transgressions, for our sins against God. And guess what else happened? We were pardoned. He got a verdict of condemnation, and we got an acquittal with no court of appeals. Isn't that wonderful? Why does Jesus not want to judge you or me for the unforgivable things that we've done to him and to one another? Why is that? What reason is there? Because though he was rightfully in the place of God, he chose to stand in our place. Jesus Christ is the ultimate redeemer of all humanity. 
because he is fully God and he is fully man at the same time. And that's the kind of redeemer that you and I need. This means that the guilty verdict is in, the guilty verdict has been pronounced, the sentence has been carried out on Calvary to the letter of the law without mercy. The punishment has been completely absorbed by Jesus Christ, and it is over. It is finished. It is done. This means that outside of Christ, there is only judgment remaining for our unpaid transgressions and sins. But in Christ, there is not a drop of punishment that remains for us to absorb. He didn't go to jail for like 99 of a 100-year sentence, and we got to do one year. He did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And that make you smile? I love that song. Brothers and sisters, have you ignored God's instructions lately? Just ignored it? Is your conscience condemning you of wronging others? Then there is good news for you. Bring your guilty conscience to Jesus and ask him to rinse it clean, and he will rinse you. He will rinse you clean. Look again at the cross. Look at the cross. See that the words of Jesus, his words of forgiveness, are more than words. They're more than words. This judge is gentle to rebels, so run to him. Run to him. Don't walk. Don't fidget. Don't dawdle. Run to Jesus. He's turned our poison into medicine of healing. He has stood in our place, and he has pardoned us for real and forever. This is good news that we can believe. It's good news that is true. Jesus has forgiven the unforgivable in you and me. May we forgive the unforgivable in one another. I love you guys. Jesus loves you too. Let's pray. Jesus loves you so much. You're so good to us. You're too good to us. Lord, would you help us see how wonderful you are, how you've forgiven the, the utterly unforgivable. No one else would do that, but you do that for us. And Lord, as you open our eyes to this, as you give us that divine perspective, God, I pray that you just, there would just be welling up in us gratitude, and it would just bubble its way up through our mouth, that we would say thank you for this and thank you for that, and we just, we just want to thank you throughout the day today and throughout the week. God, I pray that if there are things that we need to forgive in one another or family members or neighbors that live around us or whatever, that you would help us forgive because you have forgiven us. And I pray that that would wash over us. I pray that that would penetrate like a dye 
into, into wool, Lord, and just would get down into us and get down into our hearts and we'd believe it. We'd grab hold of it by faith. So we thank you for your love. We thank you that you rinse us, rinse our consciousness, rinse our thoughts, Lord. You're so good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.